Hi, I'm Steph from Heinemann. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Carla Espana and Luz Yadira Herrera, co-authors of En Comunidad, Lessons for Centering the Voices and Experiences of Bilingual Latinx Students. If you haven't heard their two previous episodes, we invite you to go back and take a listen to them now. In this episode, my colleague Jacqueline Carabinas joined Carla and Luz to talk about translanguaging with poetry in your curriculum. Poetry can be a great teacher, and in teaching, it's imperative to speak to the multiple experiences and languages in a class. Their conversation started with describing how poetry sustains community. This is Carla. I'd love to start with that poem that Eileen Almonte, my sixth grader, wrote. Just thinking about that experience of teaching poetry with my sixth graders. It was a bilingual dual language class, uh, particularly that, that class with Eileen. And poetry as resistance in terms of how it looked like in that classroom, um, it really helped us resist the monolingual lens and that monolingual focus that's so often present in the curriculum that we get for teaching, reading, and writing, or also the monolingual focus of publishing. And so for us, which is really important as my sixth grade team, that we were planning for including poetry that was bilingual, including poetry that was multilingual. And in that particular um, instance where Eileen had shared her poem, uh, we were including music. Uh, we had this beautiful partnership with the Silk Road Connect project that's led by uh, Yo-Yo Ma and the Silk Road Ensemble. And so we had musicians that would connect with our classrooms once a month. And it just so happened that that poem was shared right after a musician has shared their experience with um, learning their craft and sharing their music. So for us, it was poetry as resistance in terms of resist those monolingual practices. But I know that for Luz, we've, um, we've also thought about resistance in other ways. So in terms of uh, topics, we think about topics that can be used for talking about resistance movements or just resistance in general for injust of, of injustices around immigration, around class, working class, right? Um, and other topics that may, might be relevant to the community. Well, the other day we read a poem by Francisco Alarcón called Working Hands. And one of the things that we talked about is about these, this idea currently about who gets to be or who is an essential worker. And uh, when we think about who is key and critical to the, to the food supply chain, we think about immigrant laborers, right, or immigrant labor and how they are considered essential workers now, but they've always been essential workers and they are essential to feeding all of us right now. Um, and so that's just one way that we can talk about current issues and we can resist um, harmful narratives about who gets, who belongs or who is essential or who is important in society. So we, we'd love to draw from Francisco Alarcón's poetry, also Juan Felipe Herrera, who talks about the Mexican-American or the Chicano experience um, in the United States, for instance. So th those are just a few poets that we love to draw from and um, when discussing resistance as a genre. And poetry also for us is healing, right? And how timely was it that this morning, right before recording uh, this recording right now, is um, I was listening in to a sixth grade class. It was their first time going live, uh, the teachers going live in their virtual instruction. 
Uh, they've been doing modules online with tasks uh, for different subject areas in their middle school in New York City. And this is the the fourth week. I don't know. I lost track. Maybe fourth or fifth week. What is time? Uh, fourth or fifth week of instruction. And they've now launched this third phase of going live for uh, at most 15 minutes uh, with different subject areas. And I got to listen in to some sixth graders read their own I Am Born poems that were inspired by Jacqueline Woodson's first poem in Brown Girl Dreaming that's titled I Am Born. And it talks about the moment she was born and what was happening around her immediate surroundings, but also what was happening in the country at the time that she was born. And it was so healing as a, as a process for students to, to think about what was happening with their families, uh, the time that they were born, but also in the country. And I got to hear some of the, their conversations and the feedback that their sixth grade teachers were giving them about how they observe them using repetition. They observe them including dialogue and what their family members were saying when they were born. And for, for me, it was beautiful to hear that this morning as we had done similar activity at that same school, at this New York City middle school, two summers ago in a summer program, Woodson's poem, I Am Born, and, and hearing students really think about not only their own experiences, but sometimes they were interviewing family members to find out what was happening uh, where they were born at the time that they were born. Um, so poetry is healing for thinking about maybe uh, traumatic events or also thinking about healing not only in something that might be close to the family in terms of something that happened at home or at the place where they were born, but also more sociopolitical policies and how those impact um, children. And so issues like migration, immigration have come up in their writing. Issues like access to health care, which we might call it like access to health care or injustices around health care. But the sixth graders are talking more about using language more like uh, families not being able to or being afraid to. And a lot of uh, language at the intersection of injustice around health care, um, employment and um, immigration policies. And so that's a little bit on, on how poetry has been healing for students as a way to process these events and policies in their lives. And we also talk about poetry as teaching, and uh, we use poetry in our teacher education programs. So we have to think about also how poets use translanguaging throughout poetry. And, and as we mentioned before in previous podcasts, translanguaging is the way that bilinguals perform language or do language. Um, it's a way that we draw from our entire linguistic repertoire to communicate with each other to, to make meaning of our surroundings, of our world. And so poetry often um, is a place where, where poets are using, are drawing from their entire linguistic repertoire. Elizabeth Acevedo, for instance, uh, she translanguages in her writing and her poetry um, in The Poet X. She translanguages extensively. We as teachers can also support our students translanguaging through poetry. We can have bilingual poems. We can uh, introduce poems that use features of English and Spanish or both, right? Uh, we can provide access to audio uh, versions of these poems uh, through SoundCloud or even YouTube performances. All of these are pretty widely available online. Also, we can provide students access to glossaries or translation tools so that they can uh, interact with the text and um, examine how the, the poetry moves, right? The, the moves that the poets make to create their art. And hopefully that will inspire them to create their own and similarly draw from their entire linguistic repertoire. 
one more thing that I'd love to mention in poetry as teaching is um, I've often used often by meaning when I visited um, schools around the country, when I've been doing virtual visits and conducting classes uh, with uh, teacher ed programs, as well as middle grade that I've done. Um, I've been sharing a lot the novels and verse that I've, um, so I've mentioned uh, Brown Girl Dreaming as, as Jackie Woodson's memoir that's in verse, but really I'm so thankful for authors like David Bowles and um, like the uh, David Bowles, They Call Me Guido Border Kids poems. I specifically was using the poem The Newcomer a lot. And it really was like having another teacher in the room. It really helped the classrooms that were either K-12 that I was a part of or with um, higher ed classrooms where we were talking about issues of immigration and the impact of, on children and families' resilience. And so it was like having, you know, David Bowles was the other teacher in the room with me. I'm often having these conversations with Luz, right, where we keep recommending each other these novels in verse and saying, you know what, like it's, it's, we're bringing them into the classroom and they are like poetry as teachers. These other poets and these other poems are accompanying us in expanding our understandings of the experiences of bilingual Latinx students. So just had to mention that because it's been really powerful in the classroom. I love thinking of that, of authors as another teacher in the classroom. We always, you know, we talk about, you know, the classroom environment being a teacher, and it doesn't even stop there when you go beyond, you know, what you think of as the teacher in the classroom. I love that idea. So thinking about the poems that you've mentioned and the authors making choices about poems to include, uh, the voices and narratives that you center in the classroom sends a very clear message to students. Can you talk about the impact on students when you intentionally resist the monolingual white narratives that tend to dominate text choices? Throughout our book, um, we explored the topics, right, on language, identity, and power structures. And uh, poetry is a really nice way to explore those, uh, those themes in a way that's really accessible. And so for us in our teacher education classrooms, for instance, we love to use um, the TED Talk, which is a spoken word performance by Dr. Jamila Lyscott, and it's called Three Ways to Speak English. And we use it as a mentor text for our students to think about their own language journeys, as well as their own language ideologies, which we explored in another, in another podcast. When we ask teachers to consider the ways that they have come to their understandings of language or the way that they view language, including English and varieties of English, that has a direct impact on the students they'll be teaching or they're teaching because the way that they the way that teachers view students language practices right will impact the way that they teach them and so we can use um, mentor texts like like this ted talk as well as inviting students for themselves to share some themes or topics that they're interested interested in exploring or getting to know making sure to get to know the school community or the community uh, the surrounding community and explore topics that are important within that community context. Creating those spaces, right, is going to be important um, in terms of getting students to make connections with the classroom, between the classroom and their community uh, experiences. And um, just rethink narratives, reshape narratives that might be harmful. Yeah, I think we're very intentional too about I mean, the question was around in being intentionally 
intentional to resist the monolingual white narratives. And so that means we have to be intentional to um, put forth text selections that are um, centering the voices and experiences of Black, Indigenous, uh, people of color. And so for us, that means being intentional about those selections because the pattern in our teaching, both in K-12 as well as with higher ed, is that students, not only do they see bilingualism and multilingualism reflected in the poems that we select, um, but their confidence changes, they are excited. I mean, how many of you have mentioned, oh, we're going to start a poetry unit and you hear, oh, and I'm not talking about like with third or fourth or fifth graders. I'm talking about with adults. Like Luce and I have this conversation really often. <laughs> and then, oh, and you get like this pit in your stomach and you get really nervous because poetry so often has been taught in ways that are harmful because the voices that are shared are not reflective of our students' populations. Um, but also like the there's there's just no, the joy has left because it's just like, here you go, here's a rubric and you make sure you include alliteration, onomatopoeia, and you're going to do a haiku on Monday. And then I'm going to teach you this other form on Tuesday. And so you lose the love and you lose the joy. And what we talk about is being intentional and centering these voices. It just brings the joy back into the classroom where it or into the learning spaces because students feel validated. They're opening up to a variety of experiences. So for example, I was not born in the South. I don't have the, uh, of the U.S. I don't have the experience that Jacqueline Woodson uh, talks about in, in right, Brown Girl Dreaming. I don't have the experience of the character in They Call Me um, Guero in David Bowles' novel of um, going through what he goes through and navigating different spaces. But I'm, I feel like I'm, I've been made such a better person, right? I'm growing as a reader. I'm growing as a friend. I'm growing as a human being when I interact with these texts that are showing me the experiences of the most marginalized and those whose voices um, have been silenced. And I'm just so thankful because I've been able to see that impact on the students uh, where they change as people, right? Where their awareness uh, grows. And so if we can create more spaces like that, then that just makes my day. I think I've, I heard you both describe in one way or the other of, um, about the intentionality. And I think that, you know, when we don't center a variety of voices in the classroom, then certain voices become other. And if they become other, then students in the classroom that might um, connect personally with those, they feel then that they are other. And it just seems to have this domino effect on students. And, I, you know, giving those examples of how you don't necessarily, Carla, relate specifically with the text that you read, but it's made you a better person. I think that really links to what Luce was saying earlier about how, you know, teachers have to intentionally make these choices. It's for everyone. And it's not, not just if you are multilingual, bilingual, monolingual, you have to make these choices for everyone. It's for yourself and it's for your students. And it reminds me of something you said in the book about unlearning the way um, that you taught poetry. There's a lot of unlearning to be done. You, If you think about your experience in school, you probably had a long list of um, the white narrative poems that, that you're mentioning. And so if you don't unlearn that, then that's what's going to persist. So I just heard a lot of connections between what the two of you are both talking about. 
that reminds me of the the instance that I've shared in the past about doing a poetry workshop where I had um, Jamila Lilia Scott's video clip with uh, middle grade that Luz just mentioned earlier, uh, Maida del Valle, her video, um, her spoken word, Tongue Tactics, I believe it was either Tongue Tactics or Descendancy or the grandmother poem that she delivered at the at the White House when President Barack Obama and a Langston Hughes poem. There we go. So we had that text set and I'm going through the first two. So I played the two video clips. Students are interacting in small groups. It's really exciting. And there were teachers watching this demo lesson in the classroom and the principal raises her hand and like disrupts and she says, well, when when are you going to start teaching like real poetry? When are you starting the poetry? Like for real, like the real poetry. <laughs> Those other two weren't real. Uh, and so that that kind of reaction, right, from this uh, white woman who is uh, leading a school in a predominantly um, a Latinx neighborhood, it was mostly Dominic- students from Dominican Republic. And whether I was there or if I were in, you know, Scarsdale, New York, or Westchester, wherever it might be, more white spaces in, in that same state, that's poetry, you know. <laughs> and so we're talking about this form, we're looking at rhythm, we're looking at these themes. And so the fact that that principle needed to unlearn, right? And that that we all we all need to do that unlearning. It's it's a life's work of unlearning because the work of colonization just hasn't stopped. And so it's still in our schools, it's still in the ways people's land has been taken. It's still in the ways, you know, people in Puerto Rico have dealt and continue to deal with this. And so I'm highly concerned that it's it's taught as if it were just history and and we're looking at poetry in in such a white monolingual ways. And so I'm really excited to keep sharing with this book and in other formats, uh, other poets and poems that we can bring into the class and learning space. Uh, in the book, you give examples of plans for including poetry across the week, across the month and year. And I love the imagery of lingering with a poem over the week. I just, when I read that word choice for thinking about spending time with a poem over the week, I love that idea of it anytime, but I really love it, especially thinking now um, with the, the learning situation we find ourselves in with schools, what an opportunity to spend the week with a poem. But anyway, um, I know the power of what this can do in the classroom, and I'm sure a lot of uh, people listening do as well. So I'm looking forward to hearing you both describe your approach to planning these lessons um, and what you share in the book. So this started in my experience as a middle grade teacher in a school that was K-8. And I used to do a lot of uh, visits in my school to other classrooms. So that was a big part of the teaching philosophy. You get to be a better teacher by watching other teachers and being in conversation with them. And I noticed that in the lower grades, they would spend so much time on poems and songs. And it was like a staple of the kindergarten and the first grade classrooms, right? And they would do shared reading and they would have these poems written on big chart paper and point to the words and kids would read them together. And it was participatory. It was exciting. And then the higher up you went, like I talking about my own um, grade, the sixth grade that I was teaching or seventh when I taught seventh and I was a coach for four through eight, it just wasn't there as, it wasn't as present as the lower grades. And so um, we decided to bring it in um, and say we're, especially because we wanted to keep the excitement going and talk about topics. And so we looked at ways to have poetry be a part of our instruction throughout the school year. And so the way we planned it was we thought about topics that would be of interest to students and we looked for poets, again, that were that were most represented populations that we weren't 
learning from or hearing from in other parts of the curriculum. And so those voices that um, we wanted to bring and amplify. And so that meant for me that I started, we, we had a month where it was all Langston Hughes poem and we planned to have one poem a week. And we would plan it so we would have a poem a week by the same poet across the month. And so by the end of the school year, students would have uh, interacted with different poets and different poems. And so what we do in chapter six of the book is that we have some examples of what that might sound like or look like. And so we have, for example, thinking about topics to start the school year, maybe thinking about bilingualism and talking about poems about bilingualism for week one or bilingual identity about family or family time in week two. And we recommend the poetry anthology for celebrations, holiday poems for the whole year in English and Spanish. Not only is it a great anthology for different poems for the lower grades or upper and elementary, but also they have the uh, recorded, the audio of the poems on SoundCloud. So that's really helpful, uh, especially now if we, we don't have access to the, the print copies or as people wait to get things in print in the mail or get digital copies, then you also have the audio, which is really beautiful. Week three, could we could talk about books or libraries or texts in our lives. And um, week four, challenges or hopes. So some some kind of themes that we pick for the, for the week. And those last two weeks, we were recommending um, Margarita Engel has a wonderful book called Bravo po Poemas <laughs> or Poemas sobre Hispanos Extraordinarios. So uh, it's titled Poems About Amazing Hispanics is the title. Uh, it's illustrated by Rafael Lopez, beautiful illustrations for different uh, figures throughout history in the present. And uh, so we recommend using some of those. And that's what that might sound like if we were planning across topics like that. For six through eight, we were thinking about those same topics, right? Bilingualism, family, texts or books in our lives, challenges and hope. But this time, uh, returning, we can we can look at David Bowles' poem, Losing My Accent, also, the poems that are in They Call Me Guero. Obviously, I would definitely return to The Newcomer as one of my favorites in They Call Me Guero. But then also about family, thinking about Francisco Alarcón's wonderful, oh, that, that poem is so impactful, In a Neighborhood in Los Angeles, in Un Barrio de Los Angeles, that we have these available bilingually. It was so beautiful to see pictures and get updates from a friend of mine in New Jersey who was trying these out when we kept, I just kept sharing different poems and how it impacted students on the East Coast to read about a poem about a place on the West Coast, but then they were writing about their own neighborhoods as well. And we've used a lot uh, Carol Boston Weatherford's Schomburg, The Man Who Built a Library, that's also available in Spanish, illustrated by Eric Velázquez. Just really thinking about those themes that are connected to students' lives and finding these poets and voices that we want to amplify and planning across the week so that in chapter six of our book, we have a helpful guide for when you plan across the week, thinking about ways that not only the teacher reads, but the class engages in reading with the teacher every single day. So there's this beautiful, that you're just listening to these poems and reading together and then having discussions across the week that could focus on different things, right? So you think about meaning on one day, on another, you might discuss figurative language or the, the craft moves that the poet makes. You might have a, a short conversation one day about translations or Look at the English version of one, the Spanish version of another, or some poems that blend different features of languages. And you could discuss what those translations might mean to you or if you would say things differently. And ending always with some kind of response if children want to perform, they want to write their own and be inspired. So that's a little bit of how we, we planned 
so that way poetry doesn't doesn't stay in in April, but you could keep celebrating poetry in April, uh, National Poetry Month, but it should be throughout children's lives. Teachers can also support students writing poetry across the month, across the year, is to um, have poetry centers or poetry stations. And we like the idea of centers because centers typically are spaces where students can really take ownership of what they're doing and really uh, lead their own learning uh, with the teacher as a facilitator instead of sort of dictating. But we can have a center where students just watch uh, spoken word poetry being performed to see how it's done or some examples of how it's done, right? We can have a center where uh, students can rehearse favorite poems, maybe not their own yet, but other poems that they like. Uh, they can, you know, rehearse with each other in a small group and another center where they can rehearse their own poetry and just kind of get a feel of what it feels like to to share in front of others in, in a small sort of safe group. Right. You can have other centers where students can create um, some sort of digital media. Maybe they can audio record or video record themselves reading these these uh, poems that they've created or perhaps poetry from others that they like. And even another space or center where students can create uh, or merge their poetry with images and audios, whatever inspires them that tells a complete picture of whatever it is that they want to communicate or express. So that's just one way that um, we can support the creation or this uh, student's creativity and just student performance and sharing across the year. So where should we look? Which authors should we be speaking out? You've listed a ton already. So where should we look when we're looking for poetry that honors translanguaging? And how can this be integrated into our remote instruction now? You've talked about this a little bit already, but I'm thinking I'm listening to this. I'm really excited now. I want to, as soon as I'm done listening to the podcast, start searching to see what I might be able to include. Where where will you send us? One wonderful resource that we, that we love is poets.org. And you can sign up to have a poem delivered directly to your inbox every single day. And it's kind of a nice way if you're if you're like me, the first thing you do, which I know you're not really supposed to do is check your email. I just can't help it. Just grab my phone and check my email. I love to see that in my inbox, you know, so that's a kind of a really nice way to start your your day. But um, this this tool, for instance, enables you to search uh, for poets by genre or by movements. For example, uh, New Oregon poetry, or if you're interested in slam poetry or spoken word poetry, you can search like that. Or you can find poems by theme. Maybe you're interested in social justice or immigration, or like we mentioned before, family or bilingualism, bilingual identity. You can find them by theme as well. Well, we've also created in chapter six in the book, we, uh, we have uh, over 15 poets uh, that we created this list to share with our readers that are all uh, poems on language, power, and identity. So if you'd like to create those kind of plans that uh, we've been discussing, like poetry across the week, across the month, across the year, uh, we really recommend that you check out that um, figure 6.7 in chapter, in chapter 6. We have a lot of poets there that we wanted to highlight along with their poems. Uh, but also something that I, that I do and I check um, almost on, like, on a daily basis my inbox loose is ridiculous. So <laughs> I do, I do love, I do love that. I understand the sense of like opening your email and seeing a poem. Yes. Um, but usually if I even attempt to like, when I go open my email, I just get 
a lot of anxiety, especially now, which is everything's adding up online. So <laughs> something that I do that doesn't give me that feeling, it's the opposite, um, is I follow a lot of uh, poets on social media. And so uh, following the poets, and they've shared a lot of poetry readings, they share a lot about uh, new releases or books or videos of, of themselves reading poems. And so like Jose Olivares, a uh, poet in Chicago who uh, wrote Citizen Illegal. I follow Margarita Engel, who's, I don't know, does this woman write like a book a week? She's just so prolific. <laughs> it takes up so much of my shelf and I've been sharing so many of her books, uh, like her memoir, Enchanted Air, also in verse. Um, Jacqueline Woodson, Kwame Alexander, Jason Reynolds, right, our National Ambassador for Young People's Literature, Joy Harjo, our U.S. Poet Laureate. It's just been so helpful for me to follow their accounts. And um, also, I think recently, um, Nikki Grimes was uploading um, to her YouTube some videos that were so helpful for me because as she was discussing her process of, of writing from that beautiful book I used with middle grade, uh, One Last Word. It's um, Wisdom from the Harlem Renaissance. And so she uses the golden shovel method and um, the illustrations are beautiful. They're all by Black artists. Um, and there's an illustration that accompanies every single poem in that book. But recently she was sharing on her social media up some videos of her reading some of those poems and talking about her writing process and what that sounds like, looks like. So I highly recommend that if you take a look at the list in chapter six, that you then go and find um, these poets on social media and really follow them because you'll get the latest from from them as well. And I, I definitely can't, um, I, de I definitely don't want us to leave without recommending that you all listen to Juan Felipe Herrera's latest poem called Social Distancing. And it's a beautiful poem that expresses some of the feelings that many of us are having right now. And the really special thing about this poem is that it's also a sort what he calls a solar circle poem, which can be read in any direction, or it could be, as he recommends, uh, cut out and spun like a wheel so that you can just start it at a random place. And it's just a reminder that poetry um, constantly breaks boundaries, right? There are really no boundaries in poetry. And it's a it's an art form that can really be, I think, what we make of it. And so that's just an, a really important reminder and a, a really relevant poem right now. So check it out, Social Distancing. What would you say to teachers who say, okay, this is great, this sounds wonderful, but I don't have time for this in my curriculum calendar, or this, you know, this isn't on the list of things that my administrator has given me to address for the year. You know, time is always an issue in education. So what advice do you have for teachers to, to include this important practice? Well, one way, one easy way to think about including uh, poetry every day or every week, or every month is um, think about what's, what are the themes that you're exploring in your current curriculum, whether it is your, maybe your ELA curriculum or your language arts curriculum. What are some of the themes that you're exploring and what are some poems that can really complement those themes? And maybe you can have that posted up for the week or for the month for students to revisit and make connections. Also, I think in thinking about that question, um, you can go back and look at uh, not only the themes like Luz is saying, but also 
what uh, are the kinds of writing that you're teaching? Look at the forms of expectations of writing. And maybe students are writing personal narratives. Maybe they're writing realistic fiction narratives. Wherever there is narrative, right, why not bring in novels in verse, right? You can bring in memoirs in verse as mentor texts. You can bring in realistic fiction novels in verse as mentor texts. So like Aida Salazar's The Moon Within, I recommend that book at every middle grade that I visit every middle grade teacher I, I speak with, uh, really powerful themes and great character development. But those poems, I mean, we quote in chapter, when I, I think it was like four, yes, in chapter four, we have this excerpt from it. I mean, listen to this. Our ancient ancestors honored our flowering in this way. It is a ritual taken away from us during so many conquests. And that comes from Moon Ceremony poem in The Moon Within, um, where the mother, it's a, the dialogue between the mother and daughter, um, and the daughter is about to get her period and is all hesitant and, and really not embracing the way the mom is embracing this time in her life and preparing for this moon ceremony that the mom wants her to have. And so um, really thinking creatively, right? Are, are there places in the curriculum where I'm expecting students to to read narratives and write narratives, then I can bring in these these stories, like Guadalupe Garcia McCall's um, Under the Mesquite. Eh, que mas? There's just so many texts that that have impacted me as a reader and also as a writer that I've been using within those writing um, units or uh, writing instruction, right? Like we mentioned earlier, Margarita Engel's um, memoirs. Also, she has she just has a, a lot of texts that are are written in verse, and so really looking to those as your other teachers, right? As we were saying earlier in the classroom. And and like I shared the the shared uh, reading and like those plans of reading poetry across a week that you could plan. They don't have to be 40 minutes, right? Each day it could be 10 minutes. And those are the, I've had those conversations with, uh, oh, there was a second grade team in El Barrio in East Harlem in New York. And we were curriculum planning and they had that same exact reaction when I looked over their uh, their scope and sequence for reading writing across the year I didn't see poetry and I just wanted to cry I was like how do you not have poetry and they said the same thing Jacqueline they're like nope there's no room like this is what we have to do it's part of our curriculum and I said okay if I'm not saying you have to add a whole poetry unit but what if we did poetry 10 minutes a day and I and I started with them like three days a week that was it I was like if you do three days a week 10 minutes a day and um, we'll break it down in this way where we read the text together and then we look at some figurative language and the students get to respond by reading it and performing it out loud or writing their own. And we did it and it was so powerful to see the excitement in the room. It was bilingual. The teachers were excited to plan that way. And so I think that's that's an accessible way to bring it in and um, connecting it with the themes, topics that, that Luz was saying and also thinking about these texts as mentor texts. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate uh, connecting with you all on this in this platform. And we hope everyone uh, takes some time to read poetry and write some of your own as well. My thanks to Carla, Luce, and Jacqueline for their time today. En Comunidad is available now from Heinemann.com. Follow Carla on Twitter at Profesora España and Luce at DRA underscore Luce Yadira. Learn more at blog.heinemann.com. The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. It is produced and edited by Steph George. Sound mixing by Steph George. Our creative producer is Lauren Audette. 
And our executive producer is me, Brett Whitmarsh. To learn more about the Heinemann Podcast, visit blog.heinemann.com. Thanks for listening.